Okay, so the topic tonight we're learning is the contro- controversy around Shemitah, the Hatem Mechira. Very, very unusual, it's like somehow this always happens, but uh, I was having a meeting um, with uh, Rabbi Walter and uh, some other Abanam and, and Rabbi Holland who oversees the cashers over here, and he says that he, he just found on, on the shelf of one of the stores here, he found a, um, a, a, a package of dates that had Heter Mechira on it. He said he finds it very hard to believe that there's six-year-old dates <laughs> on the shop. <laughs> so he's imagining that it's, uh, that it's probably, um, you know, mislabeled. But uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. A bottle of wine would be one thing, you know, a package right, right. of dates, that's, that's, that's highly unusual. Anyway, so, uh, but they do, we do, it's, it's not accepted in our stores over here, so it is, it is removed from the shelves, Heter Mechira. But Heter Mechira does make its way to America, so it is, it is relevant over here. So Hatim Khir is this fascinating controversy, and what's fascinating about it is, is that it has a long history, um, a history that dates back to the 1880s, and it extends till today with all its various different ramifications and its, uh, you know, its permutations. Um, and you know, for this uh, particular shear, we don't have that much time, and even to just go through the history, it would take me about an hour. <laughs> I read through about 40 pages of condensed history, <laughs> uh, and then con- I condensed it even further, but it's, it's a huge undertaking. And then the topic itself covers so many different issues. There are so many different halacha styles involved in this mechira. So in s- what I decided that what we'll do is like this. That essentially, this chaburah was really more of a chayshem mishpah kind of... Um, Usually that's what we would do over here. We would talk about you know business-related halacha, and the, I have another series going on about controversies in uh, Jewish history. So I thought we'll try to combine both of them, and we'll just focus on one little part of the Hatem Mechira, which happens to be relevant um, on two levels to us, and that's the issue of the din of Malchus Adina, which means how can you make a sale uh, if it's not if it's not a legal sale if it doesn't work according to secular law. Can you make a sale? Can you make just a halachic sale? Does that have any, does that work? Does that have any um, validity halachically? And that, that, would that also apply to, let's say, or applies to everything, actually. Yeah, it's not limited to, it's not limited to Hatzimachir, correct. It's, it's relevant to Hametz. Uh It's relevant even in, in this very specific question is relevant to uh, when you buy a house, you know, as not so much common practice here in Silver Spring, but in certain other Jewish um, cities, they have their father buy the house for them, and uh, so that he can get a he can get a mortgage, and then they pay their father, and then halachically it's their house. Well, that was an option. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, um, and, it, and that created other halachic issues where the mortgage was under the father's name, and then if the house halachically belongs to the son or son-in-law. So, and then he was paying the mortgage, so it turns out it's a question of ribis, meaning to say mm. the father borrowed mm. the money, and then if the son bought the house halachically, so then he gave that money to his son or son-in-law, uh, and then the, the, but the, the loan was still on the father's name, so he, lent, he sent, essentially lent him that money. That's a ribis problem. Okay, we don't have to get into all that, the com- complications of how it is or isn't ribis, but it, bas- it comes down to the same question. Uh, is that halachic sale that isn't really upheld by secular courts, is that a good sale or not? Now, when it comes to the, uh, this question of Hatem Mechira, when you, they sell Eretz Yisrael to a guy, the question everybody wants to know is that, well, why is that any different than selling Chametz to a guy? You know, we do the selling the Chametz to a guy, and everybody's okay with that, even though that clearly, you know, everybody winks at that, you know, it's just a loophole. That doesn't seem to be a serious thing, right? Nobody thinks that it really works, but we all hope that it does work, because otherwise, everybody will buy a muscle, right? It's a nice So, uh, clearly it works. So, if it does work, then, uh, then, then why, uh, why shouldn't this work? What should be the difference? And that was a very valid question that was posed from the very beginning of the debate. And one of the main differences, which is what we're going to be discussing today, is the fact that chametz, what you're selling, is metaltalim. You're selling, um, not, you're not selling land. But when you're selling land, there are laws that govern the sale of land that prevent it from being valid with unless it is done, you know, re- through the registry and you have the deed and, and, and you're registered with the government that, uh, you know, that, that the sale is valid. And that's one of the very, very big differences over here. Is that right? Ruben, do you have one? Come on. Yeah. Are you saying that there's significantly less legislation about the sale of non-landed property? Yeah. So in other words, when it's not land, when it's not land that you're selling, so then as long as 
you know, the, the money changes hands or whatever other method that you, you use, it's fine. You don't, it's c it could be valid. I mean, it could be if you need to prove it and you go to court, I don't know what will happen. But it's recognized by the, it's rec recognized by law. But land sales are not recognized by law for a very important reason is that they want to be able to collect taxes. They want to know who, who owns it, you know, so it's very, it's very regulated. So let's, let's talk for a few minutes a little bit about the history and then we uh, will move into the, the halacha over here. So... Get the dates, get our dates. So in 1850, um, there were about 350,000 people living in Eretz Israel, of which 4% were Jews. Very, very few Jews were living in Eretz Israel. It wasn't very hospitable to Jews. Um, the, the poverty was crazy, like unimaginable, and the Jews that lived there were Jews that had been living there for, for, for centuries. Like the Beis Yosef, they had this little out, you know, enclave in Tzvas, and then there were some Jews who lived in Yerushalayim, the, 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 old, the old city, and uh, maybe one other city, and then that was it. That was pretty much the, the extent of Jews that lived there. Now, you would think that Jews, they always lived in Eretz Yisrael, so there should have been a lot of talk about Shemitah throughout the centuries, but it wasn't because no one owned land. It was not a thing. You, they lived in these little cities. They did their thing. They sold papitas. I don't know what they did, but they, they, didn't, they didn't do ag agriculture. That was not done. The Ga'im did the agriculture. So the only discussion that you find, like in the Beis Yosef, who lived in Eretz Yisrael, he only discusses the status of the fruit that's grown by Ga'im. Uh, Paris Akum, you know, that's the, that's just the only thing that he discusses, and there's a very famous Machlaikis uh, that the Beis Yosef has with, the, uh, with some of his contemporaries, whether fruit that is grown on non-Jewish fields, are they, do they have the, the status of Shemitah, don't they have the status of Shemitah, which is very relevant if you're in Eretz Yisrael, because that's one of the things they sell. They sell fruit that's grown in Goyesha fields, and then the question is, do you have to treat it with the status of uh, Shemitah fruit, which means you can't uh, throw it away, you have to let it rot, you can't use it for things that are not food, uh, and so on and so forth, a whole bunch of, you know, all the, all the ramifications of Paris Shemitah. So that, that's the only real talk that you hear about Shemitah throughout the centuries until you get to the 1850s. What happened in the 1850s was that's when they started to colonize Eretz Yisrael. The original colonists um, came to Eretz Yisrael not with the thought of making Israel um, their own country. That was never the plan until much later. The original thought was just to get out of Russia, <laughs> that they were being persecuted like crazy. That was why people kind of went to, went to Eretz Israel. The, they were leaving, trying to leave Europe where there, there was very, it was increasingly becoming more crazy. So originally there was a whole bunch of, of different organizations, uh, independent little organizations that were helping people go to Eretz Israel because they, they couldn't do it on their own. They, they even with the, the their, they, they took up agriculture, but they couldn't support themselves till the fields became um, pro profitable. So they were getting supported by all different communities. And so there were a bunch of little communities that were supporting their people. And eventually, they wanted to kind of bring it all together. So they, the, the different independent groups came together and formed an organization called Chavivei Tzion. They were not Tzionim, they were not Zionists. The term Zionist was created much later, uh, in the 1900s. This is in the 1850s we're talking about. This was just an organization that, that, that included many, uh, many little smaller organizations. There were two. The one was this Chavivei Tzion, and the other one was called Bilu, which stood for Beis Yaakov L'Chul Elcha. So there were two organizations. The main one was Chavetzin. Now the problem with this was was that it was comprised about 50-50 of religious Jews and non-religious Jews, and because um, there were a bunch of different organizations, so some of them were religious, some of them were non-religious. So as you can imagine, that caused a lot of friction. Now the the they they came together and one, at one point in um, I don't know what year it was that they came together. And I think at the beginning of the 1880s, and they they made uh, they made they formed their organization and they appointed a someone named Dr. Leon Pinsker, or Yehudalei Pinsker, as the head, the president of the organization. He was not a religious Jew. He was a non-religious Jew. But you have to also realize that non-religious Jews of that time were not Tinaikish uh, and Ishbu. They knew nothing. They were actually very educated. <laughs> they knew a lot of Torah. Uh, they knew a lot about Yiddishkeit. Probably all spoke Yiddish. You know, so it was uh, it was a different a different breed. They were um, proudly non-religious. <laughs> I think you could probably describe them. They were masculine. They were they felt they were reforming. You know, that was that was what they were. You're all Eastern Europe, right? So this is yeah. This is in Russia, I and, think. And, and not Sephardi, right? So all not Sephardi. No, that was a whole different. Uh, yeah, that was a whole different segment. 
So this, uh, this, this Dr. Leon Pinsker ran the organization to begin with, and then there was pushback from the from elements in the organization that it's not right, that the organization should be run by a non-religious Jew. So they then, a couple of years later, they took on three Rabbanim. They didn't agree to depose him and to have him take a step down from being the president because they felt that he's very uh, talented at organization, he has skills in running a big organization, but they took on three Rabbanim and the three Rabbanim that they took on were to be like the Yayatzim, the, 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 the uh, con- they would give consultation and they would be also in charge of the money. So they, they kind of, they split it up that way. The Sri Rabbanim were, one of them was very, very famous, the Nitziv. So he was oh, wow. one, one that was one that you would recognize. And uh, the Nitziv was never happy about the fact that he had to work together with someone non-religious. He was not, he, he resented that. He felt that it's not right. There was someone named Rav Shmuel um, Mahalavar, pronounce his name correctly here. Um... Shmuel Mahalaver, he was the Rav of Bialystok. He was about 63 at the time. So he is a very, very big name in this, uh, in this discussion. You might have never heard of him before. I won't say that I've ever heard of him before. But he was one of the real um, the creators and the authors of the Heter Mechira. He, he was, as we'll see as time goes on, he was one of the people that really created it. And then the third was someone named Rav Mar- Mordechai Eliasberg. He was the Rav of uh, Bauska or Boisk. Called the Baiskarov. That was the so three very eminent Rabbanim. They're all about the same age. The Siv being the senior and the most uh, preeminent. He was Rashiva Velazhin. But these three Rabbanim were taken on as to, 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 to help run the organization and to provide guidance and to represent the from element of the organization. Or was anybody in Eretz Was Pinsky in Eretz No, nobody was in Eretz This was all in Chosnars because they were all the support. That's what they were. They were the support exactly. system for the, for the settlers in Eretz In those days, they weren't called settlers, they were called colonists. That's what they refer to, <laughs> and uh, that's what the Swarm referred to them, colonists. That's that's how that's how they were known. So, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so in the uh, the first shemitah that essentially it should have been relevant was in 1882. That was the first shemitah that it should have been relevant. There were already three. Um, there was really mainly one from uh, colony in Petah Tikva. Petah Tikva was one of the first from colonies, and it existed already in that time. So they really should have been the that 1882 should have been the first year, first shemitah that this came up, but. Unfortunately, what happened, if you also read the history a little, they, they had such terrible luck, I don't know how to call it, terrible mazel, or just, it was, it was extraordinarily difficult to settle Eretz Yisrael. So they were struck with the malaria outbreak, and the, 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 the coal colony just emptied out. They, there was not even a minion there when Shemitah came. But it was so dangerous. They all, so they all ran away. I don't know where they went. So that first Shemitah, even though it would have been relevant, but no one, there was no one left to ask the Shiloh because of the disease. So they became only relevant for the next one, which was 1989. That was the first year that the actual the Heter Mechir became a discussion. They have the count? Well, they have the count? so that's a whole other question. That's actually a whole other discussion, which uh, is also part of this Shiloh, but uh, obviously we don't have time for that, is what exactly is the year of Shemitah. But yeah, this is the, that, that was the agreed upon, the Rav Paiskim, that this is going to be the year that Shemitah will be. So there is an element of Suffolk. Well, so no, no, no. We're assu- uh, the assumption again of most Paiskim is that Shemitah Bisman is not the Raisa. Shemitah is not the Raisa, not the Raisa because um, you need the majority of Kali Yisrael to be in living in Eretz Yisrael for it to be the right. So the assumption is the Shemitah is the Rabbanan, but uh, well, most Halachic Jews are not living in Eretz Yisrael. I'm sorry. Even today, the, the majority of Halachic Jews are not living in Eretz Yisrael. No, I don't think so. I think now. Uh, Have you ever been to Borough Park? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's right, but also it's. Uh, I think right means like from all the shvatim. Also, I don't think it's negate till Mashiach comes. Oh, you need no. like a representation from each shevet. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so, uh, in any case, yeah. So, that, 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 but it's interesting, though, is that when anybody brought up this point that Shemitah is only the Rabbanan, it got under the skin of any of the Rabbanan that were dealing with it. Like, so what? You know, we keep the Rabbanans too. You know, <laughs> <laughs> who cares if it's the Rabbanan or the But obviously, the other side was always pushing that, that it's, always, it's only the Rabbanan. Anyway, so that was the thing. But you see, it's just funny how you see that in their, uh, in their chuvas. So, so the first time it was going to be relevant was, it was 1889. At that point, there was already uh, a, a number of, of developments. One was Petah Tikva that had re- reestablished itself. There was one in Ekron, uh, which is, uh, was originally one of the cities that had pushed him. Uh, but it became, you know, it's a, Jew- a Jewish city. And uh, the third one was called Rishon Lutzion. These are very old, old uh, colonies that now are Jewish, are Jewish cities. Um, so what was interesting was that nobody really dealt with it 
until they had a meeting in Vilna, the whole Chovetzian, they all came together, all the leaders came together, they had a, they had a meeting in Vilna, and, um, there you go, Zachariah. And they were not even talking about that. Their discussion was, their discussion was going to be about just running the organization, monetary issues, they had other issues. And a farmer from Eretz Yisrael was in the summer, and there was a year or two before Shemitah, and the farmer from Eretz Yisrael, who was by chance happened to be an architect also, he, he came, he was in, spending the summer in Vilna, and he attended this meeting, and he told the Rabbanim, Rabbi say, stop talking about who should lead this organization and how you should funnel the money. Someone has to figure out what we're going to do on Shemitah. Are we, is there any heter to, to, to work on Shemitah, to work the land on Shemitah? We're not going to survive otherwise. So the, 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 the status of the developments there was extraordinarily fragile. Like between these diseases, between their lack of experience and understanding of how to work the land, between the, the, the issues they had with the, the um, at that point it wasn't British, it was the Ottoman Empire, they were not very friendly either. So nothing was working for them. It was very, very difficult. They barely, barely eked out an existence over there. So the, the assumption was that it's, uh, it's almost if they keep Shemitah, they won't be able to survive it, they won't be able to survive the not having income for a whole year. That was the assumption. Turns out it was not necessarily so because it, it seems that as far as, as, far as uh, agriculture goes, you, you have to leave the land fallow anyway. You can't plant a, a, a field year after year after year. You can't do that. It depletes the minerals. Generally, what they would do is they would stagger. So it means they would plant some crops this year and another crop the next year so that they always had something growing. So essentially what they, when Shemitah comes around, it's, it's a whole year of not doing anything, but what they did was is that the year before they planted everything so and, then the, and then they just planted nothing the year of Shemitah. It wasn't as big of, a, of, an, of, of like, a, oh my gosh, like, you know, you're shutting down your, your um, you're selling down your clothing, your clothing store for a year. That's not exactly what it is. It's part of what they do anyway, you know, to keep the to keep the land keep the land going. That's why the Rabbanim in Yerushalayim, when they wrote their tshuvas about it, they were all against it, very, very strongly against it. They said, you know, it's, like, it's not because nefesh. It's, this has to happen anyway to some to some level. So that was they had a different approach to it. Yeah. It, it see the Torah seems to indicate that that would be yeah no it is a challenge it is a challenge and even today if you hear the accounts of the uh, of the of the the Shemrishvius it's difficult it's very difficult it's a big sign because the bottom line is you not don't have income for a year right and and then the year after Shemitah what are you going to eat you didn't plant anything the previous year so it is an issue but the point I'm sorry and the, yeah possibly the Pasuk was also talking about a three year thing right that's also a possibility but regardless the point is just that it's not quite as catastrophic as you might imagine that's all I'm saying it's something that kind of happens to some extent anyway fine so uh, you know I, I'm not like I said some other time I think uh, we'll, we'll give a full blown share on this and really get through the, the whole the whole the details of the history but what they, at this point, these three Rabbanim started working on whether you could have a heter, this heter called heter mechir. Could you sell the land to a guy, and by selling it to a guy, would that help? First of all, are you allowed to? Does it even help? Is there any way to make the mechir valid? There's a whole bunch of different shalos involved. The Nitziv wrote a whole kuntris in his Chuvis Meshav Davar. He opposed it. The Rav Mordechai Malavar that I just mentioned, and this Rav Mordechai Boisker, they held that you could figure it out. There was a way that the heter could be fi- figured out, and they joined up together with another rav, who was a, a very a more of a famous rav. His name he wrote a sefer called Yeshua Smalkai. It's a well, well-known sefer. His name is Rishila Kutna, and they together for, they came up with this plan how to do heter mechira. Now the way they came up with the heter mechira has absolutely no uh, resemblance to what the heter mechira is today. They said like this: you could sell the land to a guy. Only the guy is allowed to work on it, not a Jew. You could sell it to a guy and have the guy work on it, um, and the Jews could pay the guy to work on it, and they can get profits th- through doing that. You know, so, but it's essentially the, the, the guy only the guy could work on it, and it, gets, and it says property of the guy, and uh, the, and then they discussed whether certain malachis, which are malachis rabbanim, because like um, shemitah is kind of like Shabbos. There are some things that you do on the su- that, on you, or that you're doing on a field that. Are the raisa you're not allowed to do, like you know, plant, planting and, and hoeing, etc. Then the other things that you could do, like when we're talking about a vineyard where it kind of grows on its own and it's just basically necessary to make sure it doesn't uh, decay or doesn't, doesn't, the trees don't get ruined, there are certain things you're allowed to do and there are certain things that are drabanan. So they had some kind of a certain, you know, 
uh, uh, qualifications that a drabanans could be done, and they basically left it in the hands of the Rabbanim in Yerushalayim, who opposed the whole thing. But they put it in the hands of the Rabbanim Yerushalayim, that they'll make the final call on this. But this was their heter. What ended up happening was that they, when the heter was eventually accepted, they just did everything. Because you know, that, that's, that's the nature of these kind of things. Once there was a heter and it was sold, then the, the colonists who accepted the heter, they just worked and they did it themselves. They didn't have a guy do it, which is what the heter mechira is today. So the original heter mechira was not designed that way. And he also signed off on it, but also a very limited, very limited heter mechira. And then it went on throughout the generations. Rav Cook got involved and others. It, was, it, got, it got exciting and, and there was a lot of fighting involved and it became very political because, you know, there were the non-religious elements. The non-religious elements all controlled newspapers. You know, you have no idea of how many Jewish newspapers there were at the time. Like, we have a couple. Uh, there were like a hundred then, and there was no radio, there was no TV, there was nothing else. So that's all people did, they read newspapers. There was a big market for it, and the newspapers, all the non-religious newspapers were lambasting the religious uh, Rabbanim who were opposing the Heter Mechira, and uh, they were, you know, were very righteously saying how terrible it is, and so on and so forth. So, like, there's a lot of history over here that we're, we're not going to cover. So... Um, what what is today the, you know part of the question which was the question then but it actually morphed over time because the mitzvah changed, meaning to say that at the time of the original Hatem Mechira, Eretz Yisrael was owned by the Ottoman Empire, uh, and then it switched over to the hands of the British. Now it's owned by Jews, right? And those all changed actually the status of how this question is dealt with. And it's a question we're going to be dealing with today, and that question is: um, Can you make a sale of Eretz Yisrael? If that sale will not is not recognized as a, a sec, by secular law, is not recular, recognized legally, meaning to say, uh, if I take my house today and I want to sell it to you, and I just write up a piece of paper and I say oh, my my house is hereby sold to you, and we don't go and I don't get you a deed, uh, it's not put on to register it well. Right, I don't have any kind, I don't do anything, right? I just write a piece of paper, give it to you, so it is absolutely not recognized according to secular law. It's nothing. It's not. At most, maybe they can say it like an IOU. Maybe you can, you can force me to sell it eventually, but it's not yours. It's, by secular law, it does not belong to you. And this has two ramifications. So one ramification that we're going to talk about is Dina de Machusudina. Does the mere fact that secular law doesn't recognize it, does that nullify it from a halachi perspective too? So that's that, because halacha requires that it should work according to secular law. That's the first Gemara we're going to take a look at. And then the next question is, is putting aside the secular law, there's an additional issue here that maybe, you know, every time you make a Kenyan, you need Gemir's Das. Is you have to believe that what you're doing is going to work. And if you know when I write this little piece of paper to you that, okay, I just sold my house to you, you know that should I, should you come back and, and I say, okay, you know what, forget it, I changed my mind, you will have no recourse because you're going to go to, go to, to, to court and they're going to laugh you out of court. So that itself makes that there's no gemir staff. So you don't really think that what we're doing has any kind of validity. And the fact that you don't believe it has any validity could also nullify the Kenyan. So those are two problems. And then the third issue we're going to deal with is that even if you do say that Dina the Mahusa Dina, and essentially here in the United States, if you would make a, a kind of sale like that, that would not work. But there's a big question whether is in Israel if that applies as well. Now this has nothing to do with the Zionists and whether you hold of Zionists or you don't. <laughs> That's not the issue. This is an issue that Rishonim talked about well before there was such a thing as Zionists. And the reason is very interesting. The reason is is because Eretz Yisrael uh, belongs to every Jew. So the, the, the underlying concept behind Dina Mechusad Dina is that the government owns the land. Whereas in Israel, that's not the case. It's a shutfist. We all own the land equally. And therefore, there's no power of government that can, that can enforce a law over how you could or can't sell land. That's a big shout on the Rishonim, the shout how we paskin. Um, and then there is this question, a very funny question, actually, that turns out is that even if we'll say you know, it does work, and Dina Machusadina maybe is a problem, isn't a problem, or maybe we could get them to recognize it. Then there's another issue is, uh, there's, there's other ramifications of selling the land to a guy, meaning to say, if Eretz Yisrael is sold to a guy, right, um, and then some, you have a piece of land somewhere out there that's officially during Shemitah sold to a guy, and then someone squats on that land during Shemitah. So you take him to court, and he says, get off my land. He says, who are you? You don't own this land. Find the Arab that owns it. You know, he could take me to court. 
uh, this is an actual court case in Eretz Yisrael, and uh, they, they made that claim. So we'll get to that, how the courts dealt with that, and that's going to actually be a big deal. Uh, that's going to make a, it's going to make a very big difference how the Israeli courts choose to recognize this uh, this mechira because they, they do deal with it. So let's see let's see how much how many of these maramakaimis we can get through. So the first the first source over here is Gemara Cheskes Habatim. It's on Dafnun Dalaramid Bay. So the Gemara says um, this is a, a very a strange kind of Gemara. What it says, I'll, we'll just take it at, at face value for now. It's two lines from the top. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. Yehuda said the name of Shmuel. Nichsev the kachav maharein kemidbar. The property of a guy is is like uh, is like hefker. It's like a midbar, which is hefker. Call a machzik behen zacha behen, and anybody who jumps in and is is machzik gets it. Now, what this means is like this. It doesn't mean that a person can take uh, the, the the property of a non-Jew. We're talking about a non-Jew that made a sale to a Jew. Right, so a non-Jew and a Jew had a transaction. The non-Jew sold his property to the Jew. And the problem here is, is that the method that a non-Jew uses to transfer property is different than the method that a Jew uses to, not, to transfer property, halachically speaking. So the non-Jew transfers out his property, uh, property as soon as he gets paid. So as soon as the money passes hands, he pra- transfers over the property. But the Jew can't, take, pr- can't take, acquire the property halachically until he has a shtar, until he gets the deed. And there is some, that there, the case that the Gemara is talking about was when there was a, la- a lag between that. In other words, the Jew gave the non-Jew all the money for the land, and then before the the deed was handed over to the Jew, say that took another day till the lawyers finished writing up the deed, some other, another Jew jumped in and took uh, acquired the land through doing chazaka, another, another met- method of Kenyan. So the Gemara explains that being that there's a difference in, in, in Kenyanim between Jews and non-Jews, what happens is like this. As soon as the non-Jew gets his money, he basically relinquishes ownership of the land. He says, okay, I'm done. I got my money. I'm out of here. You're, it's, it's free for you to take. And the Jew can't actually acquire it with that alone. He needs a star. He needs to have the deed or he make a chazaka. So he's waiting around for the star. The other Jew comes and jumps in and makes his chazaka. It becomes property of the other Jew. Now, the, the Rishonim talk about what, about what happens to the money then. Does he have to pay him the money? Does he get the money back? Right. Those are all details. But the, 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 that's what the Gemara is talking about, is that there's two, the, the, the Kinyanim are different, so this kind of funny thing happens. So let's see again. The property of a guy is like Hefker. Kol hamachzik behen and whoever takes uh, ownership will get it. My taima. What's the reason? A non-Jew, as soon as he gets the money, he relinquishes ownership. And Yisrael Lekani, but the Jew doesn't actually get it until he gets the star, the deed. And therefore, in the interim, it's like a midbar. It's hafker. We call it and anybody who steps in can take ownership, and there's nothing you can do. So Amalei Abayi Le Rav Yosef, Abayi asked Rav Yosef, and this is the part that's relevant to us. And Miyamar Shmuel Hachi, how could a Shmuel said this? Shmuel holds that the secular law is law, the the king's law is the law. And the king says that you can't take ownership of land only with a star. So that's, how could this be true? In other words, being, it's true that according to halacha, he perhaps relinquishes ownership as soon as he takes money. And you, according to halacha, don't get possession until you have a star. But according to secular law, no one can relinquish or take possession of land without a star. So this guy who jumped in and did a chazaka, or the non-Jew who relinquished it by, giving, by taking the money, that's all not valid according to secular law. According to secular law, nothing happens until the star changes hands. So that's the question. The Gemara says that you're right, it doesn't stem, and the Gemara gives, tries, answers it some other way. So this, but this remains, this remains the halacha. Now take a look at the Rashbam. The Rashbam is uh, this little square on the side here. <coughs> Second line. And he explains. It's all taxes, and Arnunias is like a land tax, property tax. Misim would be uh, income tax. And all rules. Shall Mishpadei that the kings uh, institute. Shergilim lahanhig b'malchusam that they have instituted as law in their kingdom. Dinahu it's law. Shakal b'nei amalchus mekabelim lemeretzaynim. Now Rishbam gives a reason for it. He gives this is his explanation why dinah because all the, the the members, all the citizens of the kingdom accepted upon them willingly. 
his rules and his uh, his laws. And therefore, it has a status of halacha and is din gamru. So this uh, other Jew who jumped in and tried to take acquisition of the land, it doesn't work. Uh, he would be he uh, it, whatever. If you're doing it according to law, it won't be stealing, and if it's against the law, then it will be stealing. So the Rashbam over here is this is the Rashbam's by the way his own original approach to how din and works. Not all Rishonim agree with this. We'll see a little bit about that later. But this is the Rajbam's approach, which is a very blanket approach. In other words, this really uh, covers many laws, the way the Rajbam explained it. He says that the concept of Dinah Mechusadina is because all the citizens of the kingdom accept those laws. That's why they have. That's why they have. They have power according to halacha, because the the, the 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 citizens of the king accept his laws upon themselves willingly, and therefore this is one of them. And Dinah and it overrides what the Jewish law would be. The problem, obviously, with saying such a huge blanket statement that they accept all the laws of the kingdom is that, if so, what exactly is Chayshem Mishpat for, <laughs> right? Why are we bothering to study the halachas of Chayshem Mishpat? Let's just open the secular textbooks, you know, law, the law books, and find out what the halacha is. So that's, this needs to be uh, modified, you know, qualified, I guess, to understand exactly what the Rishbam, how far this goes. But that's his explanation. But regardless, here we have a Gemara, basically, and this is a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. This Gemara is brought down just as you saw it in Shulchan Aruch. The way it says it, that Dinah Mechuzadina, and if you do a Maisekinian, if you try to make an acquisition of land that is not upheld by society, the secular law, it will not work. That's what it says in Shulchan Aruch. If you try to make a Kenyan on land that the, that, that the, the Dinah Mechuzadina doesn't support, the secular law does not support, it's not Kaina. It's not yours. Okay, so this is obviously number one problem with making any kind of acquisition. Now, this uh, we Bez Hashem, we haven't uh, uh, unrolled this plan yet, but the, the shul is planning. I know you might have, you might have seen um, different organizations that offer land in Eretz Yisrael that you can buy a little piece of land in Eretz Yisrael and. Um, then uh, you buy that land and you have it for Shemitah and you obviously don't work on it and this way you're Mekayim the Mitzvah of Shemitah even living over here. So the Shul of Ez Hashem we're going to be planning to, to, to fund, uh, have a fundraiser and we're going to sell, sell such karaka. But the question in other words goes both ways. A, when we buy that land in Eretz Yisrael we have to make sure that we do it in a way that's recognized by Israeli law and by American law. Because if we buy the land without doing it in a way that's recognized by American law and Israeli law, then halachically it's not ours, and we've done nothing. And likewise, the other way, if they want Heter Mechira to work, then it's going to have to be a sale that's recognized by secular law and by, and, and by uh, and both uh, in, internationally, so that it should work. Otherwise, you're going to run up against this problem of Dinah Malchus Adina. So this is the first big issue that they had. Now, back then, um, the Ottoman Empire when this originally was dealt, dealt with, so they did not recognize the sale. They did not recognize the sale because they said, if you want to make that sale, no problem, but you're going to have to pay taxes on that sale. <laughs> and nobody was interested in doing that, right? They were not interested in paying taxes on that Because we weren't, we weren't talking about selling the whole Eretz Yisrael because the Jews didn't own the whole Eretz Yisrael. They owned little plots of land, right? They owned uh, this little settlement, this colony of Rishon Lutzin, and this colony of Petah Tikva. And those, the land, to begin with, was bought by, they had huge supporters, uh, Baron Rothschild uh, lived in Paris, Edmund Rothschild lived in Paris, and he had put up the money, he had funded the purchase of the land. So this was regular land. In the eyes of the Ottoman Empire, of the Turkish government, it was just land that, that just happened to be owned by Jews. And if they wanted to make a sale, and if they would have registered it with the government, the government would say, no problem, pay taxes on the sale. And when you buy it back after Shemitah, pay taxes once again. So they, no one was interested in that. that no one was going to be doing that. So they made this, their sale just like, you know, on, under, the, under the table, so to speak. So this was a very serious issue. It's not Now today, that is very different. Now, it's very interesting. There's a number of interesting laws in Eretz Yisrael. Number one, I didn't know this, but you can't buy land in Eretz Yisrael permanently. Are you aware of that? Right. 99 years. If you buy land in Eretz Yisrael, you can only buy it for 99 years. Why not 50 like Yovel? Well, no, 99. <laughs> 99 years. I don't know what's wrong with 100, but now you can only buy it for 99 years and then it automatically reverts back to the country, right? Because they want to keep it in Jewish possession. They don't want, it to, they don't want the Iranians it's to like buy it. It's an extension. Right. Like, oh, you can keep on extending it, right, right. Is that only for Jews, or...? 
Everybody, okay. anybody, right? I don't think uh, anybody can own it. Only for non-Jews. So even right. if you're a Jew, well, so what no, we nobody owns it. Well, so it's just to make sure that it all stays in are Jewish. Yeah, stays in, stays in Jewish possession. So, so that, so that's an issue. Avoid the issues. So then, so the government though was approached by the rabbinot, and they said that if you can ever make a, if you can't make a permanent sale, then we're going to run into trouble by shemitah because in order that for this halacha to work, it needs to be a permanent sale, which is itself a discussion. But that was their assumption: you need a permanent sale. So they amended the law. And they said, except for sales of the land for the purpose of Shemitah, that does work on a permanent basis. So they, they made an amendment in the law. Now, th- this is very relevant because that means the Israeli government is recognizing the sale of the land for Shemitah, right? So that's, that's, that's already something, right? So that, that, that means that from a secular perspective, they are legalizing that sale. And they write, they designate who can make the sale, they write, uh, you know, the Rabbanot or anybody that they designate. So it's, it's all part of the, the legal system that they, they recognize that sale. So one would think that that should help, right? That should make <coughs> things a lot better. Uh, but as I mentioned before, it's not so simple because that actually complicated things. You take a turn over here, the other side. A little hard to read, but on the bottom over here, this is a ruling of the Israeli court in, uh, it was September 2nd, 2009. So in 2008 was a Shemitah. 2008 was a Shemitah year. And the, the, the court case began in 2008, and then it just slept till September of 2009. Uh, I imagine September of 2009 was probably still Shemitah, or maybe just after. I don't know what kind of year that was, in every year or not, but it could, it's very possible it was still Shemitah, or it was right before Rosh Hashanah. So what happened was like this. This is the story. The story was was that I think the, the, there was farmland, which was, uh, I don't think it was actually owned by the, the fellow in question. It was leased from the Israeli government. And then this guy during Shemitah, since he couldn't plant the farmland, he built a couple of warehouses and he started selling um, carpentry materials and uh, newspapers. And this was against the law. It was against the zoning and it was against the, what was his rights as purchaser of, of uh, rental, renter of the land. It could only be used, it was only legalized for, for farmland. So he was taken, he was issued a, uh, a stop and desist order by the ministry, the, 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 the real estate ministry. And he took them to court and he said, it doesn't belong to you. You can't tell me what to do. You sold it to a guy. There's an Arab that owns it. If he wants, he can take me to, to he, can, he can tell me what to do, but you can't tell me what to do on this line. So this is the, this is the claim. This is the first paragraph here is the claim. It says, Tainam et Nicephus befiam evakshim. It's all the way on the bottom here. Kosav hatviya, the claim is, Hugash Bishnas Tafshan Samaches, which was a Shnas Shemitah. Shabon Nimkru Kalmakarka Hameshiv Lunakri. All the land was sold to a non Jew. The Fikh in Hameshiv, Baal Hazri is Bimakarka in, the person who's, who's uh, suing over here, the, the Israeli uh, real estate ministry, uh, aren't the ones who have rights to the land, the real estate. The Ain La Ilas Tviya Klapem of Action. He has no right to sue. For the for, or have a claim against the mivakshim, but tenosim mistamchem hamivakshim al haroyis chaykis koyis b'mekarkayin. So they're relying on the law that was passed uh, about real estate kiyim mitzvah shemitah tafshin lamates in 1979. Shesif uh, one the first uh, the first part of it is matir l'sar mishpatim. It gives a right to the sar mishpatim l'sar datot. Be'ishur va'adat ha'chuka, so they have to be appointed by the va'adat ha'chuka. Chayikim mishpat shal knesset. It was you know authorized by the knesset. Lahaskin takanot ba'asher la'asakot b'makayin l'shem kiyim mitzvah shmita. They have the right to sell the land for the purpose of keeping shmita. Umoyrish etakanes ela yechulu, and they 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 ruled that these sales should work. Al Afa Omer even though it's against the law that was passed real estate in 1969, they did make these rules, etc., etc. I'm not going to go break my teeth on all this, but basically they're saying that the the, the, the people the defendant over here was saying that according to the law that was passed in 19. Uh, in 1979, ten years after the 1969 law, it authorized the sale of the of the country to a non-Jew, and the the government recognized that sale. And if so, it does not belong to the government; it belongs to the non-Jew. So leave me alone. So on he now they have a whole long reason why they have four reasons why this is shtuyot. On the bottom of here it says, We disagree with this taina from every possible perspective. And they have a whole bunch of reasons. Now the last reason is this, and this is the one that's the most relevant because it kind of makes things uh, a little nerve-wracking. Revius, the and this is our main reason. 
When they sell real estate before Shemitah, it's only sold for one purpose and one alone. And it's as the language of the Chayk. It's sold for Kiyam Mitzvah Shemitah, in order to enable keeping the Mitzvah Shemitah. This is actually the opposite, right? It's sold, it's, uh, it's sold that you shouldn't keep Mitzvah Shemitah, but okay. Uh, it's pretty funny because they kind of, they, they're like Medayik, the law. So, Kalashna Chayk, Kiyam Mitzvah Shemitah, it's sold so in order you should be able to keep Mitzvah Shemitah. And don't come to the conclusion from this sale, which was for only the sake of Shemitah, that the seller lost all his rights, from every perspective, and now there's someone else that has rights to this land, this real estate, now they're free to do as they would like, and there's no, uh, no, there's no, no one who could tell them what to do. Selling for the sake of a mitzvah has its reputation on its side. And the, the, the real purpose of this uh, sale we're going to skip the parentheses, two lines down. Who, Shehakoyna Yedem Eroish, the buyer understood to begin with. Shemecher Nasus Lutzerich Mesuyim, it was only sold for one purpose, Zebul Vad. And the sale, the buyer, the non Jew, doesn't have any right to do anything other than what's necessary for the mitzvah to, to, uh, to be able to, to be kept. And then he goes on, whatever. And he says, he tells you who you can talk to if you want to understand this better. So, this is very troublesome, right? So here they were, they were basically fa- faced up with their uh, sale. They said, okay, you sold it to a non-Jew, so you lost rights. They said, no, 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 no. We just sold it to Inyan Shemitah. Just for Shemitah it's sold, but nothing else, no other, everything else you still retain ownership. That's very nice that the Israeli court thinks so. But according to Halacha, that's, that's nothing. That means you didn't sell it, right? Yeah, that means, you know, so, so, uh, so, you know, on one hand, maybe we gain something, by the fact that the Israeli government recognizes the sale, but as we see, once the, anybody tries to, take, tries to take advantage of that sale, they immediately step back and they say, no, 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 this is just a religious sale. It doesn't really have any kind of validity outside of the religious sale. Um, basically, they have just negated the whole sale. So this is very trouble. This is a very troublesome thing. And the guy had some chutzpah to, <laughs> to uh, actually make that claim, and he, he kept the court going on this for quite a while. It was like a few months, they were they were fighting about this. But this is a, this was a um, a high level court. In other words, it I don't know what level of court of appeals, but it, it went it went pretty high. Not to the Supreme Court, but it went pretty high until they they rejected his claim. Is there anything different about the sale than a regular sale? Um, so, well, typically, yeah, typically the sale would be like, you know, our kind of Mechir Ischamet sale, that you just sit down with a guy, you write up a document, and go. But here, the, it's actually executed by the Israeli government. The Israeli government executes the sale. They appoint the Rabbanut, and they have the Shliach, and it's done with the blessing, so to speak, and with the, 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 the power invested by the Israeli government. So it would seem that that's great, but then now you see it's not so great, <laughs> because they're not really doing it. They don't, they, they, don't, they don't even know what it means themselves, right? They're doing You know, so it's, it's, by, by definition, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Does the Israeli government sell... All of the country. All of Israel. Whole country is sold. Wow. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So if you hold the Hatha Mechira, theoretically, that there is no Shemitah for you anywhere. Right. Well, that's, that's uh, if this part of Hatha Mechira. This is just one part. This is just to see if the sale even works to begin with. Right. Then there's the next part of Hatha Mechira, Shiloh, which we're not talking about, is even if it gets sold, does that even make a difference? Does selling it to go change anything? Yeah, this is just this is this is really just this is like pulling out the rug before we even start, right? That's this question: does does is the sale even a sale? Then there's another halachic shaila whether the and that came up before 1850, right? The eating of peros that correct that was already an older question, right? Whether does it make any difference if you sell the guy? Similar, yeah, very very similar. Does this opinion though have full bearing in halacha though? Meaning this is one court opinion by one. You know, Correct. So, and you know, again, we're talking secular law. I mean, you tell me, how does it work over here in the United States of America when a, when a court makes a ruling, it becomes a precedent, right? right? But it depends. Unless it's overturned. It depends no? on the level the of the court. court. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's the Supreme Court, it doesn't bind anybody other than that specific circuit. Is that true? Yeah. Is that how it works? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so, so you, I don't you know if it works like that in Israel. They have to know if it works like that in Israel. If the court is not, if that case is never appealed any higher, doesn't that become the de facto ruling for that? For that, for that jurisdiction. jurisdiction. So it's clear that this, 
So I mean, it, 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 if it gets brought up somewhere else, meaning in Maryland, you could have one law of the land essentially, and in California, you could have another so, until the Supreme Court decides. So now, let's say in Maryland, they they pass it in some kind of case, and California never never ruled on it, never came up, and then it comes up in California. So you're saying the the police department can't act on it? No. They can't act on that ruling until until someone until the court over there makes their a ruling like that. Court has to uh, they have to rule right. on it. Yeah. Okay. But their court could cite Maryland's law and they say, like, "Okay, this it's is how they decide." It's not actually. It's not binding. Yeah, yeah, so it's not binding. Okay, so that's a good question. So I don't know how that works. I think this is just more. This is more illustrative of the way the secular Israelis are looking at it, and they're the ones who are authorizing the sale. It seems like it fundamentally uprooted a assumption. Correct. That was that was previously there. Yeah. Based on this, so, so you want to know is everybody necessarily bound right by to, it? I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's, that's a good question. That uh, that's a valid question. Up the halakhic, uh, yeah. Valid. I mean, you see, the rabbin is still doing it. This happened in two thousand and eight, right? It's a while ago. So. <laughs> does, still, does Israel yeah. forfeit all property tax if they're selling all property? Then nobody owes them any money that that's year. That's all the same kind of thing. Yeah, it's the same, the same like this. Like they have no rules. They can't. They can't exercise any rights to the land. Yeah, it's basically the They're same idea. No, Looks like no one had the nerve to do that. No one had the nerve to tell. Because like, no one taxes. messes with the IRS kind of thing. Taxes. You know, <laughs> taxes you don't mess with. You know you don't mess with taxes. This they thought it could get away with, you know, like some zoning issues. Anyway, fine. Let's take a look at We don't have that much more time left. Well, isn't real, right. And I, again, you know, it's the same, uh, it's, it's the same issue. Let's uh, take a look over here. We don't have time to go through everything here. So let's, let's see this um, number three. Number two, the, what we're skipping, number two talks about the other issue I discussed with you about if you, um, the fact that the government doesn't recognize it, that it also affect the Gemir's Das, that you don't really take it seriously. That's number two. But number three was the, the Ridvaz. Now, this is already a later, a later date. This was in 19, the Shemitah of 1910. Shemitah of 1910, right? Okay, so 1889 was the first Shemitah that they dealt with it, and they dealt with it in, in 1896 again, came up again. Um, and then 1903, and now 1910. This is 1910. In 1910, Rev. Cook already moved to Eretz Yisrael. He became the Rav of Yafo, and uh, he became the de facto Rav of Eretz Yisrael. Even the Yerushalayim Rabbanim, like Roshmul Salant, and the, the big Gedalim, they, 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 revert, they um, defaulted to him, to, on, in Yonim, anything that's Negea for Mrs. Louis Baras, they defaulted to him. And at the same time, also moved to Tzfas and, and started yeshiva was the Ridvaz. The Ridvaz, his name was Yaakov David Belovsky. He was a big guy in, in uh, Europe, and he wrote a very famous pirush on Yerushalmi. So it's printed in Yerushalmi's that we have. It's called the, the Pirush of Ridvaz. That's what it's called. And he also wrote a sefer on the halacha of Shemitah and other things. It's called Pas Hash, HaShulchan. Um, he, he has two purushim, and he's one of the purushim. And this is the hakdama to that sefer. He was very now. Him and Reb, and Reb Cook originally they started out they were very friendly. They both respected each other, and he was fire against Heter Mechira. And Reb Cook, uh, contrary to what people think, he did not hold of Heter Mechira either. Reb Cook did not hold of Heter Mechira. However, he supported Heter Mechira because he said at least. If they're doing it, let's do it, and for whatever it's worth, it's worth. You know, so he his his approach was that let's do it, and we'll be matzal the people who are going to be working on shemitah anyway. If if it does work, so then as much as it works, it works, and it'll save the people who are working on shemitah from doing an avera. And in his opinion, he wrote that the people who are working on shemitah and are relying on the hetem mechira, with their understanding that the rabbanim wrote this hetem mechira and the rabbanim are behind the hetem mechira, you can't fault them for it. You can't hold it against them. You can't look at them like the rosh. So he had a whole very different approach to this whole thing, and he felt that it has to be supported, and it has to be, and it has to be, um, you know. Uh, but he 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 very much did two things. He very much encouraged the from um, the from colonies, if they could, to keep shemitah, and it was not only it was more important then again to not only do that, but to to stop all the non-religious um, factions from pressuring them to not keep shemitah, because that was a big deal. That first Shemitah in 1989, when they made, in, I'm sorry, 1889, when they made the first Hatimachira, the non-religious parts of the Chavetzian and the other organizations put tremendous pressure that everybody should do with this Hatimachira and they should be working on Shemitah. And they went to all the supporters. They went to Baron Rothschild. They went to all the other supporters. And they said, don't give money unless they work on Shemitah. So they were forcing them. 
to work uh, to to work on shemitah. So he made a lot of effort that they should stop doing that. Like, if you want to keep it, you keep it. If you don't want to keep it, you don't keep it. Don't put pressure. So he put a lot of effort in in so to speak, you know, to see that the the hatamachira works, but at the same time you don't have to keep it. But look at what he writes over here. The who. No, not the Rabbanim, no. No, no, no. The non-religious uh, parts of Chavetzin. Uh, so le- le- look what he writes over here, right? It's very sharp. Yisrael, Am Kaddish, B'nei Avos HaKadoshim, Yisrael, the Holy Nation, the son of the Avos HaKadoshim, Tifkuchu HaNechem, open your eyes, V'tabitu B'en Pikuchu, and look with clear vision. Kol Ish Yisrael Bardas, any Jew who has any kind of seichel, any kind of knowledge, even if you're not a Tamil as long as you have some kind of understanding, you'll understand, to sell to a, a guy, an Arab, as color Yisrael, to the whole of Eretz Yisrael, to remove its Kedusha from our land. Besides that there's a Isser to sell Karka in Eretz Yisrael, which is one of the other problems there is, you're not allowed to sell Karka in Eretz Yisrael, or Mulvat to a non other isurim involved in doing this. The actual mechir itself, halacha pshuta. It's a clear halacha. Gemara mufureshes of uchesh and mishpat sumim kuvtzadi dalad. Shebekarkoyes loy moyel hamechira. That by karka the, the mechir does not help. Imloy nasa barkoyes shalom amshalaf. It wasn't done with uh, the government's uh, the, the the government's court. Va'alkein hagam atzmochan. If so, think yourself. Im harav de yafu the the rav of yafu of cook. Kasa Al Khatikas Nayar on a piece of paper, Star Mahirullah, Rabbi Ayachev to this barefooted Arabi, Shakal Eretzisral Shabiad Yudum Shaykh that all Eretzisral that belongs to the Jews is now his. Him Bizar Khana Arabi, the 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 for this this Arab bought it, Benifka Sral Minkadu Shasa, Hanaya Razan Roy Alatra Pitzluchas, the piece of paper is only worth it for a soda cap and it's not worth for anything else. So very, very sharp, you know, very, very sharp they said. But his his point is saying, how could you think that this has any kind of validity? Who do you who do you think is gonna abide by this sale and that 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 it'll mean anything? And he says very clearly that you don't have to be a Tamil Chacham to understand it. <laughs> Anybody should be able to understand it. And it is, it, is, uh, it, is, it is a very good argument. And again, when they were asked, when they were challenged, why is it different than Salim Chametz, this was the difference. The difference is that Salim Chametz, there's no problem since secular law. It doesn't go against any secular laws when you're selling something which is not land. But land requires registering it and, and, uh, and having a deed. Okay, we uh, pretty much ran out of time. I'll just tell you what the other Marmukhamis are. Number four is the Ran. It quotes a Taisvis uh, that, that says that, uh, what I mentioned before, that it's only a non-Jewish countries that have a din of Dina de Malchusa Dina because they own the land. And since they own the land, they tell you, you want to live in my country, uh, you're going to have to follow my rules. But in Eretz Yisrael, everybody has equal ownership, so there's no, there, actually the law has less power. Then, number five is a few halachas in Shulchan Aruch and Simon Shin Samach The first one is a quote from the Rambam that seems to contradict this and says clearly that whether it's a Jewish king or non-Jewish king, you say Dina Mechuzadina. And then the, the last, the next two, you could, if you have a chance, you can take a look at them. There is, you see how complicated it is in the Ramah, how far we go with Dina Mechuzadina. There's two, two very contradictory um, Ramahs over here. They, they, basically seem to go head-to-head, whether we say it by everything, or we only say it regarding taxes, or we say it regarding all laws, and so on and so forth. So this is, this is all part of the, the modern-day controversy of Avdin uh, Mokhzudina, just, just to get it off the ground, you know, just to make that the sale works. Is not even that's not Pasha. And then there's a whole bunch of other styles, what happens after the sale, but even just to make the sale valid um, has this, uh, this issue.